0: We find here in our text the apostles who are suffering for the cause of Christ, for the name of Christ, and yet today there are those who are uncomfortable with the name of Christ, as it was in the first century, so it is in the 21st century. It is a privilege to bear that name, and it's also a privilege to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that principle taught in this passage here today as we look at the disciples who left the beating that they received, counting it a blessing rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ.
1: The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving.
0: Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Acts in the fifth chapter, Acts of the Apostles. And to kind of bring you up to speed, we have the Apostles standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, who were the Sanhedrin? Well, they were made up of two religious groups, kind of oddly enough, didn't agree with each other on much. One was very liberal, the other was very legalistic, both were unscriptural. And yet, I guess, compromise and apostasy makes for strange bedfellows, so these guys were making up the Sanhedrin, and here's the apostles now, called before them, called in on the carpet, and there's going to be a showdown, because the disciples have been told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Well, that's where we pick it up. In verse number 29, down to the end of the chapter, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee, Named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God." And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Notice the reaction when they got roughed up. They counted it an honor. And we're going to be talking about that today as we talk about the privilege of suffering, suffering for Christ. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we bow our heads before Thee at this time. We're grateful for Your Word, and we're thankful now for the chance that we have to look into the things which angels desire to look into. Help us now to seize the opportunity, and Father, I pray that You'd speak to each and every heart in a special way. And no doubt, in a crowd this size, there's, there's one that You have something for, especially May all be listening as if they're that one. We pray now and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago there was an indigenous missionary who was going from village to village in India bringing the gospel to the natives there and he went into one village in particular and the people were especially hard and they spurned the message and basically drove him out of town. So he left town, he went out to the edge of town and he saw a big shade tree there and he was very tired so he decided to just lay down and take a nap under the shade of that tree and when he woke up he found that the whole village had come out there one at a time and was standing around him looking at him. And he he sat up and he wiped the sleep out of his eyes. And the, the chief of the village went over to him and said, We have been watching you as you sleep here. You have such a peaceful and a serene look upon your face, almost a smile. And we've observed your feet, how blistered they are. And yet you have brought this message to us in spite of the fact you're tired and hurting We have perceived that you're a holy man, and this man you want to tell us about, this Jesus, we are willing to listen to you. We find there a Christian of old who was willing to suffer. The privilege of suffering was something real to him. And now we find here in our text the apostles who are suffering for the cause of Christ, for the name of Christ. You know, there's always been disdain for the name of Christ the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, people take God's name in vain and they use it as a curse, but if they really want to blaspheme, they will say Jesus Christ in a derogatory way, in a a cursing way. And yet the Bible says of that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. It's a name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we find as the apostles stand before the Sanhedrin, Those clergymen aren't even willing to mention the name. In fact, in verse number 28, they refer to it as this name. Did we not command you that you should not teach in this name? And later on, describing Christ, they said, You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice they wouldn't use the J word. They wouldn't mention the name of Christ. The name of Christ. Obviously, they're very uncomfortable with that name. And yet today, there are those who are uncomfortable with the name of Christ, as it was in the first century, so it is in the 21st century. Well, let me just say without stutter or stammer at the outset today, it is a privilege to bear that name, and it's also a privilege to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that principle taught in this passage here today as we look at the disciples who left the beating that they received, counting it a blessing, rejoicing, that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. As we look at this passage here, let's take a look at, first of all, what I call the upset culprits, these scoundrels, the Sanhedrin here, the upset culprits. They were uncomfortable because they were under conviction. And we find in verse number 29 uh, a statement. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men on the heels of being told, stop preaching in the name of Christ, they go, "Uh uh-uh, we ought to obey God rather than men. And God has told us to preach in the name of Jesus. So we find here, first of all, a, a statement, and then it's followed by the sermon. It begins in verse 30. Peter says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Notice those words, ye slew. You did it, you killed them. What a statement here. They're standing fearlessly before a council that could put them to death and accusing them of the death of Jesus Christ. And it's like, whoa, that's bold. Because no doubt the Sanhedrin had rationalized that it wasn't really their fault. I mean, the words of Jesus came back on his own head here. He condemned himself or Pilate condemned him or the Romans killed him here, but not us. But Peter lays it out. He says, you slew him, you did it. And boy, I'll tell you what, now they're on edge. They've been talking about killing these guys, but the public is murmuring now. And these these clergymen are on on edge because their reputation has taken a hit. And now they're being accused of the death of Christ. And let me just say to you, there's been no greater crime in all history than putting the Son of God to death, a sin against God. And that's what Peter accuses them of. In verse 30, he said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew And hanged on a tree. Ye slew the God of our fathers. He's reminding them we're all Jews. Peter was a Jew. James was a Jew. John was a Jew. Every member on the Sanhedrin was a Jew. And Peter reminds them that the same God, the God of our fathers, the God of the Jewish nation has raised up Jesus whom ye slew. They had no excuse. They were Jews. They should have known the Bible. They should have known better. The Romans might have had an excuse. But not the Jewish people here. No excuse for them. And Peter reminds them of that. The God of our fathers has raised them up. The very one you hanged on a tree. There's a double meaning there, by the way, as well. And it's a nice twist and kind of a bonus to something Peter wanted to point out to those those clergymen that every one of them knew. It was a curse to be hanged on a tree. They knew full well the uh, the Pentateuch, and Deuteronomy 21, 23 mentions, his body shall not remain all night upon a tree, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. And it's it's denoting here capital punishment in general, but it's a, a statement here that every Jew understood. Anyone who gets hung on a tree is cursed. It's a curse. Well, that cross was a tree, and Christ hung on it there. And... I'm sure these Jewish men further justified that he had it coming because look what happened to him. He ended up hanging on a tree. And in their twisted logic, they thought it's further evidence. And by the way, Jews today still refer to Jesus as the hanged one. The hanged one. And these Jews back in the first century were totally clueless to the fact this was all deliberate. It was all in God's economy. It was spawned in the mind of God in eternity past. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written "Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And if you connect the dots it's a beautiful picture of something here. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He took our sin upon him and cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree and now Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. Well, Back in our passage, verse 31 mentions him. Peter goes on, speaking of Christ, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now this is Messiah talk. And Peter didn't have to spell it out. Because these were the professional theologians he was talking to. And the Sanhedrin knew full well everything about the Messiah here. They knew it better than anyone. And Peter refers to him as a prince. As a prince. What is a prince? We have a, a prince in England and a princess of Wales or whatever it might be. A prince or a princess is the, the son or the daughter of a sovereign leader. And certainly, you know, next in line in our economy, but... A prince, the prince of God would be the son of the sovereign king, God himself. Now, in verse number 30, he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he have slew, and hanged on a tree. And him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. For to give, notice this next word, repentance, repentance to Israel. Repentance is not an afterthought, folks. It isn't so much religion today and even in those within our camp, sadly, but it's not an afterthought. It's an integral part of the gospel and it's an integral part of salvation and no repentance, no salvation. What is repentance? Well, it's a change of mind. Metanoia is the Greek word and it simply means a change of mind, a change of attitude, an attitude to where we get to the place where we don't take sin lightly anymore. We realize it's serious. Sin is serious. And a lot of people, they they want to have their cake and eat it too when it comes to going to heaven. They want to hang on to their sin. They don't want to change their mind about it. But that's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. We find in verse 31, he mentions repentance to Israel. And then at the end of the verse... He says in forgiveness of sins. I just want to stop and remind every born-again Christian here today that you are eternally forgiven of your sin. We've been talking about that late really around here, and I know how the flesh works. It is so easy to forget that after a while. But at the moment of salvation, you received eternal forgiveness. Past, present, future. Past, present, and future. You are forgiven. As you sit here and you listen today, have you been saved? Do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? You say, well, I'm getting more religious. That's not Bible salvation. Well, I believe the Baptist faith. That's not Bible salvation. Well, I've been baptized. That's not Bible salvation. Well, I go to church. That's not Bible salvation. You can do all those things and more and still die lost and go to hell when this thing is all over if you have not been born again, if you have not had your sins forgiven. Salvation is by recognizing you are a lost Hellbound, hell deserving, hopeless sinner. And you come to the end of yourself. You come to the end of your works, if you will. You realize that none of that stuff is going to save you. And with an attitude of repentance, you turn to Christ and you place all your faith in Him, plus nothing. Minus nothing. You call upon the Lord, and you are born again the Bible way. That's what people realize, whether they they, they are need whether they realize it or not. And maybe you need it as well. Now in verse number thirty two, Peter goes on. He says, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Notice he says, We're witnesses of these things. What is a witness? Well, a witness is somebody who has seen something and testifies later, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I experienced. I was there, this is what happened. And if you have been born again, you are a witness of what God has done for you. Now, verse 32 goes on and it has a lot of doctrine in it and it's really a chance to learn some things here. He says, and we are his witnesses of these things and so is also, notice, the Holy ghost the holy ghost so the holy ghost was witnessing through those disciples whom god hath given to them that obey him in other words that salvation when we get saved it's an obedience we place our faith and our trust in christ and we are born again and the holy spirit takes up residence within us and on march 5th 1981 that's what happened to me You might not know the date it happened to you, but if you've been truly born again, you'd know the time. You'd know the experience. You'd remember where you were because when the Holy Spirit took up residence within me, I was alive spiritually. Now, there have been some things since that have short-circuited, if you will, uh, the uh, signal from heaven. And I've gotten carnal and you've gotten carnal. But let me just say, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and you never lose that salvation. We read in Ephesians 4.30, to grieve not the Holy Spirit. But notice, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's Peter's sermon in a nutshell. It's a short one. Because it ends in verse 32 and in verse 33, it says, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. The Sanhedrin is livid. They're seeing red. They want blood. And there's a number of reasons why. Well, first of all, Peter had preached the resurrection from the dead. The Sanhedrin, at least the Sadducees, did not believe that. Secondly, he had tied them in knots theologically, and that made them look bad. Thirdly, he had charged them with murder, whom ye slew. And fourthly, they were going to keep preaching. They were defying the order to stop preaching, the gag order. And they were going to keep preaching, which meant more people were going to get saved. And by the way, they had already lost thousands. We've seen thousands saved already. So that's cutting into the business of the Sanhedrin and kind of shrinking their little kingdom, if you will. So it's no wonder they wanted death. They they, they were going to kill. You know, the motto of the Sanhedrin was, if you can't beat them, kill them. You know, bottom line, just just kill them. We read in Psalm thirty-seven, twelve: the wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. And that is exactly what the Sanhedrin is going to do now. They're going to plot against the just and they're going to have him put to death. Ironically, there's a man on the Sanhedrin, I believe at this time. And maybe you haven't thought of this just yet, but I believe Saul of Tarsus is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's there. Later on, we'd know him as Paul, and the capital of Minnesota would be named after him, and he's famous now. But, but we find Saul a part of this. Later on, we find him on the other side of the thing, in Acts 9.22, where it says, Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. So what goes around comes around, I guess. And we're going to see that later. But here we find the Sanhedrin. And instead of repenting, coming clean, they dig in. They dig in. And nothing had changed with them since the time of Christ. They did the very same thing at the time of Christ. In fact, in John 5, 16, therefore did the Jews, same crowd, persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So now they're talking of killing the disciples and they're doing it right in front of them. If you read it carefully here, this talk is going on in front of the disciples. They're gonna give the disciples the same fate they'd given Jesus Christ, maybe a crucifixion as well for them. We see the upset culprits, but secondly, we see the ultimate conclusion. Now, there's a standoff here. You have to understand something about the Sanhedrin. There were two factions on the Sanhedrin. There was the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the soul, the spirit, anything really supernatural. What a worthless religion that would be. But then there's the Pharisees over here, and they believed in all that stuff, and then some things, but unfortunately, they had added some things to the Word of God. So there's a big difference between the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're both on this Sanhedrin here. They're both giving lip service, at least, to God. But one is very liberal, one is very legalistic. The, the Sanhedrin were really into the Hellenism of the day, the, Jew, uh, the uh, Greek culture, and, and, and introducing that into the Jewish religion. But here's the Pharisees, and they were letter of the law. They were no law, love, they were all law, and they were the, the, the crowd that really dog cra- uh, tracked Christ the most, trying to kill him during his ministry. And the Pharisees are divided actually into two factions of their own. Follow me here. There's the Shammai Pharisees, and they had their own school of theology. And then there was the school of Hillel, and they had their own school of theology. And with that as a backdrop now, let's look at verse number 34. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people. And commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Here we're introduced to a man by the name of Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? Well, he was the grandson of Hillel. And so his grandpa started the the, the school of Hillel. He was legendary. He was extremely famous. And this grandson now is named Gamaliel. You notice the E-L at the end of the name. Wherever you find the E-L in the Hebrew language, it's, it's normally a reference to God. Whether it's Elijah or Joel or wherever it might be found. It's a reference to God. So we find here that Gamaliel has God right in his name. And from the beginning, from his birth, he was the grandson of Hillel and groomed in to be a great, great rabbi. He's a doctor of the law, the Bible says. He's a PhD and one of the most prominent rabbis to have ever lived in the Jewish culture. In fact historians tell us that he was given a title above rabbi a revered title rabban and there's a a book that was written the mishnah which is a history of the pharisees from the time of christ up until the fall of jerusalem and this is what the mishnah says about him it says when rabban gamaliel the elder died the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died It's almost like the birds hushed their singing, you know, he was that famous and that revered that when he died, it's like, whew, that's the end of our religion, if you will. Now get this, (laughs) Gamaliel had a lot of students that he mentored, he discipled, but who was the most famous student ever without question of Gamaliel? Think about it for a moment. You say, do we know? Certainly we know. Because years later when Saul of Tarsus gets saved and becomes Paul the Apostle and does all these missionary journeys, he's winding up his ministries. He's winding down his last missionary journeys. He's in fact on his way to Rome shortly. And in Acts 22.3, he says, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. It helps you to appreciate a little bit all that Paul repented of and turned away from in order to follow Christ. He was the next rising star in the Sanhedrin, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel himself. Now, here's the deal. The Sanhedrin is going to put these disciples to death just as sure as shooting. But Gamaliel keeps his head, if you will, now he's a Christ rejector like the rest of them, don't think anything special of him here, but he's not going to be rash and he's not going to do something dumb in the heat of the passion here. We find that he calms the Sanhedrin and he says, you fellows are about to take a, a really dangerous course here. I see where you're heading here and you need to understand something. These disciples here are the underdogs first of all and if we put them all to death, there's going to be a reaction. Uh, there's going to be a mob reaction and there might even be a reaction from Rome and we might get in all kinds of trouble and we're inviting disaster if we put these guys to death. So, here's what he does. In verse 35, Gamaliel said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give them a little history lesson. He's going to give them a little bit of a reminder here, but he keeps the thing calm. He's got the age on all of them. He's extremely old by this time. And it's a typical example of somebody wiser and older standing up and taking over the situation. By the way, may I stop for just a moment and encourage young people to take advantage of the wisdom of older people, the elderly, You know, my dad used to say something, so soon old, so late smart. (laughs) And how true that is. We figure out some things by the time we get a little bit older, but why does it have to take so long? Now, not all wise or older people are wise, but most older people are wiser than younger people because they've been around the block. And they've experienced some things, and they they can probably add a real dimension of wisdom to the situation if we would just seek their wisdom. You know, I find a a fella in the Old Testament by the name of Rehoboam. He's the son of Solomon, and he has a decision to make, and it's a big one. If he doesn't handle it right, it's going to split the kingdom. It'd always be split. And so he consults with his peers, and he gets some, some dumb advice from them. And then he consults with the elderly, and he gets some good advice from them. But he goes with his peers, and it splits the kingdom. When I need wisdom, I seek out an older, wiser preacher. And I have my little my little network, if you will, of, of men that I consult with, and I get wisdom from them. So learn to listen to the wisdom of the aged. You know, in the, in the Middle East and, and the East itself, that is the culture. They revere the hoary head, the gray hair. What's wrong with Americans? That we kind of, well, they're not cool anymore, so we're not going to, you know. No, there's so much wisdom we can gain from the elderly. And we have a Gamaliel stand up here, and he's really got the uh, the advice they need. It, it says in verse number 35, He said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves, what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men about 400 joined themselves who was slain and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught and after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him he also perished and all even as many as obeyed him were dispersed. Now this isn't a Judas you're thinking about, but this was a Judas who revolted against the Roman census in 6 AD that was ordered under uh, Quirinius. And what Gamaliel is doing here is he's, he's rehearsing the short-lived movements of the past and the revolution and the wannabes who got squashed like a bug and inferring, look, let's just let this thing play itself out. You know, there have been countless movements down through the centuries, if you think about it, coup d'etats and revolutions like uh, Castro and and the Bolsheviks and Gaddafi and and others, and most end like the Bay of Pigs and disaster here, and sadly, thousands of people have wound up dead in these power struggles. But did you know that true Bible-believing Christianity has never sought power? In fact, just the opposite. False Christianity had its holy wars. And it's trying to acquire land and wealth and power and all that kind of stuff there. But our Baptist forefathers only wanted one thing. And that is to reach the world with the gospel. So you find the same contrast taking place here. And Gamaliel goes on in verse number 38. He says, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. So he says, let's take a wait-and-see policy here. Let's just back up here. Let's get our heads straight and and let's just see what this comes to. Because in the past, all of these movements have come to naught. The wheels have fallen off the movement here. The ringleader has been punished. The group has disbanded and it comes to naught. But in verse 39, he goes on. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found to fi- uh, be found even to fight against God. Now, unlike the Sadducees, Gamaliel believed in a sovereign God. He's a Pharisee. And, and so he's revealing some truth here to them. And the, the Sadducees are kind of squirming a little bit because some of the stuff he's saying doesn't square with what they believe. And, and yet he's, he's revealing more truth than he realized. He, he's saying here in so many words, only divine help could help this ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and, and uh, lowlife here uh, to actually compel this movement to go forward. Because otherwise, the, the mighty imperial army, the empire of Rome, is going to squash it like a bug and, and swallow it up and suffocate it here. It's not going to take off. And then he says also in verse number 39, but if it be of God... Ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. Now that's exactly what the Sanhedrin is doing here. They think they're defending the faith. They're going to put to death these Christians here, but they're kidding themselves. They're not defending the faith. Their faith was a joke. It was all about money. It was all about politics. It was all about power. Their motives were wrong. And if they'd have taken an honest look at the Scriptures they'd have come to the same conclusion that the apostles had. Jesus Christ fulfilled all 333 prophecies in his first coming, suffering, bleeding, and dying as the Savior of the world. If they would have just been honest with the Scriptures, they would have come to that conclusion there. But here they are fighting against God. And notice those words at the last part of verse 39. Lest happily you be found even to fight against God. This is an age-old problem. People fighting against God. And by the way, even Christians fighting against God. You know, somebody mentioned recently a movie from the mid-60s called The Bible. And it had uh, Peter O'Toole and all these stars in it. And I think uh, George C. Scott played Abraham. And when God in the movie tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, George C. Scott, Abraham, pitches a fit no 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 he's slamming the ground he's stomping it no no and and just having a duck fit fighting against God there I thought of that recently as I read this because sadly I've done that you've done that maybe not had the duck fit but we've dug in and God has wanted us to do something and we weren't willing to do it you know even in well it was roughly a year ago um we found that we were having issues with the foundation on our house and it's over 100 years old. Actually, they started building it in April of 1912, the same time the Titanic went down. So it tells you how old this thing is and now our house is starting to go down after all that time. And uh, it, it became apparent we had to move it. And I thought, no, no. We've been working on it for years. Now, thankfully, the basement wasn't finished off. It just had some burlap on the walls. But all winter long, we tried to find any alternative to picking it up and moving it. But nothing was working out. So it, it became obvious, spring came around this past spring, and uh, we got a house mover in there, I was surprised at how cheap it was, we picked it up, put it on a, a high foundation now, out of the floodplain, floodproof. flood proof, everything about it, the dirt was dirt cheap, somebody else was trying to get rid of it, and uh, the Lord provided the, the funds for it, and, and it looks so nice now, and, and just recently with it all done and, and the grass having grown back in, I, I was thanking God for allowing it. And I could see so clearly it was his will. But before, I was like, George C. Scott, no, 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 not that bad, but, but not wanting to do it. And happily, I was found to be fighting against God. Am I the only one? Do you ever do that? You know, there's something that God says, I want you to go through. And we say, I don't want to go through that. And after the fact, we kind of smile and feel embarrassed and realize, you know, <laughs> how silly that was. You knew what you were doing. God always knows what he's doing. And the Bible has this to say in Isaiah 55, 8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. How true that is. God's ways aren't our ways. And our ways aren't God's ways. And the next verse goes on. And God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I don't know if you've checked it out recently, but I've looked at the stars and they are like way, way, way up there. And God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, I mean, that's a long ways up. So are my ways higher than your ways. We can be so short-sighted sometimes, can't we? God help us to not be found fighting against God, but just, just trusting him. By the way, sometimes we get in a hurry when God's not. Has that also happened to you? You know, we, uh, we don't like to pause. There was a, a great Christian back in the 1800s by the name of George Mueller. Everything he prayed for seemed to come to pass. Finally, after he died, a friend of his was looking through his Bible. And that verse where it says, the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, Mueller had written in his Bible in the margin: so are the stops. So are the stops. And how wise that is. Sometimes the stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord. But we're always into getting stuff done, aren't we? And efficiency and effectiveness and productiveness. But let me just say, God is more interested in making the man or the woman than he is in our silly little progress. So when he's working in our lives, and it's even a pause, let's trust him. Let's not be found fighting against God. Well, we've seen the upset culprits and we've seen the ultimate conclusion. Finally, let's see this unswerving conviction. Now in verse number 40, After Gamaliel had gotten done talking, it says, And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they agreed with Gamaliel's plan, and why not? Nothing else had worked. The more they were trying to stamp it out, the more it was growing, and they were just fueling the fires here. And they had already murdered one man. If they murdered 12 more, what's going to happen? So they beat them. In verse number 40, it says they, when they had beaten them. And by the way, I don't know how bad the beating was. I know they nearly beat Jesus Christ to death before he even got to the cross. But I've got to believe in this one. They drew blood and maybe made permanent scars. And maybe they were a, a perpetual reminder to those disciples of the suffering for Christ. And there's Saul of Tarsus on that Sanhedrin watching this thing take place and the lashes going to the back there and the beating taking place, that rising star. And later on, he's going to feel the lash. Well, Jesus had told him this would happen. In Matthew ten seventeen, he said, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And so they beat him. And then in verse number 40, they command them that they don't speak anymore in that name. What were they, delusional? (laughs) Had that worked before? Really? Okay, you think it's going to work now? So the apostles get beaten. How did they react? Did they get upset? Did they get an attitude? Did they say, is this what we get for following Jesus of Nazareth? Really? Well, in verse 41, it says, And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, I don't know about you, but I might have complained or or played the victim card or had a pity party or something like that. But I find in the first century, this happens more than once. Like Paul and Silas in in Philippi, they get beaten and they get thrown in the stocks and they sing. What's with that? Well, they, they had a faith in God that this was all part of God's program here and they didn't get bitter about it. And later on, even Paul himself mentions the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Paul went through a lot of this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and his churches. Well, in verse number 42, it finally says, And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus. They go right back to the temple, (laughs) right back to the crowds. They're trying to point people to Christ. Let's go where the crowds are. By the way, they went right back to the backyard of the Sanhedrin. This was their turf, if you will. And those threats of of, uh, further beatings roll off them like water off a duck's back. They just go right back to preaching, and the Sanhedrin loses another round. That church in the first century was pure. It was powerful. It was persecuted, and it was persistent. Now, we take a look at these guys and we just think of them as larger than life, like superhuman, like, well, that was them. But let me just say, they're just like us. But they were filled with God and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they counted it a privilege to suffer. There's a song on our radio station that it's an old song. It was written by Annie Johnson Flint. And Annie Johnson Flint uh, had this debilitating disease all her life, only to be topped by cancer as she got into her middle ages and knew she was dying. But she still lived long enough to write 6,000 songs, if you can imagine this. And there's a song on our station called He Giveth. I think that's the name of it. I just love it. But she wrote these words in the midst of her suffering. She said, He giveth more grace as the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. What a great attitude in the midst of suffering. God help us to have that. You know, those apostles of old paid a price to pass on the faith. And folks, it's our turn now. It's our turn at this time. It's a privilege. And and Peter put it this way. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering that when his glory should be revealed... You may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, sometimes we bring problems upon ourselves from our own sin, and it's a, it's a chastisement. But let me just say, these 12 men here, were they in the will of God or out of the will of God? They were in the will of God. And yet they're still, they're still suffering here because truth is normally in the minority. And living by faith in a fallen world is not easily, easy spiritually. But it never has been. It never will be until Christ comes back. There's a little cemetery in the north side of London. I've been there a few times. I've mentioned it before. The Bun Hill Cemetery. And in that cemetery, you'll find John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. You'll find Susanna Wesley. You'll find a number of what they called the dissenters or the nonconformists. One of them is a fellow by the name of Isaac Watts. He did a lot of preaching in the early 1700s, but he also did a lot of songwriting. He was both, he did not conform with the Church of England at that time, and neither did his dad, who was in prison at the time, that he wrote a famous song in 1927, or 1727. He had just gotten done preaching a message about being willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. The message was entitled, Holy Fortitude. And Isaac Watts often wrote a song to go along with his message, and after he got done preaching he taught it to the church. That's where a lot of our hymns from him came from. Well, in 1727, he, he preached that message, Holy Fortitude, and then he taught them a song, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Some of you are familiar with this song. And it has this, this line, these lines in it. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Now, None of us has sailed through bloody seas yet. And I thank God for that. But we may before this thing is over. Our children might before this thing is over. Our grandchildren might before this thing is over. It's just hard to say how bad this thing is going to get before Christ comes back. But I will say this. I think the biggest enemy we now have is apathy amongst Christians. That is the biggest danger we face. The biggest enemy we face Christians aren't dying for the faith right now here in America, but living for the Lord. That's another story. And you find a lot of Christians disengaging and not in love with the Lord the way they ought to be or were at one time. And, and you find so many Christians, their hearts are shriveling and they're not even concerned about their coldness and they're dying on God, dying on God. Maybe there's a Christian here today and it's time to rekindle that first love. Maybe time to lose the bad attitude, the critical spirit, the faithlessness, whatever it might be, and recapture the joy of those disciples in the first century. They counted it a privilege, a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ.
1: You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.